There I am. Here we go. Yay! Keith Johnson first, yes. Dean Davis, Greg Haylott, Matthew Greenock, Gary McEachering, Gold from Gurek, Alan Copperson, Anthony Jackson, Alan Johnson, Karen Clark, Chris Bell, Paul Marsala, Stuart Lemon, Michael Swallows, Kevin Bremner, Gary Stafford, hello, James Edward. Kyle Elmy, Catherine Ramage, Mandy Brain, Gary McGrow from Stirling, Darren Wells, Ray Provost, Robert Monroe, Andrew Muscat, Gary Lowndes, Ronnie McLeod for Dundee, Laura Bittman, Wolves, Simon Farquhar from Richmond, Tracy Rook from North Lincolnshire, Patrick Walter Waters from Luxembourg. Tosh, how you doing? I'm really, really sorry about that Notts Forest, Notts County thing last week. I humbly apologise, as you possibly asked, on public domain. I understand you're a North County supporter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again. It's your time and it's fish on Friday. Oh God, what a week. McJames, Birmingham, Jeffrey Dobbs, Boston. Pinage, Santa Luca from Barcelona. Mike Freeburn, Yo-Yo, Tara Langston, Lai Wicker, Mandy Barber. <coughs> Callum Jamison, John Watson from Calendar. Matt Llewellyn from Welsh Lockdown. And here we are, <laughs> rolling it again. God, that one's a harsh one. Oh, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> We're back at the very beginning. It's a very bad place to start. Unbelievable. It's like, so numbers will be up this week, I take it, with the pubs being shut. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's just mental. What a week. It's, you know, ever since the last one, it was just, it's just been crazy. Uh, last question, Friday, <clears throat> from the control room, was like, uh, it was great. And uh, we had a really nice night. And then woke up the next day for the Scottish Cup semi-final, Hibs Hearts game. And bang, right between the eyes. And, uh... So Sean Connery, otherwise known in Scottish circles as Big Tam, um, it just flashed up. We were sitting there drinking coffee first thing in the morning and then it was like, you know, he'd gone. And uh, it was really weird. It was... It's very difficult to kind of put in the terms. Uh, you know, you understand what Sean Connery meant to the world as an actor and as a person, but... I think, you know, um, there's also the, the, the powerful recognition of what he, he, he meant for in Scotland. You know, he was such a, <clears throat> an international figure and he was, you know, he was Scottish. You know, it was like, you know, Sean, absolutely stunning, incredible. It was uh, his, his voice that was uh, resonating through the world. And uh, I had so many kind of memories of Sean Connery. Here we go. It's the garlic farm, and the next one's going to be Suttons and Marshalls and Dobies because it's that time of the night for them to send me spam crap. It's, um, I don't want your flowers. I have enough. But um, but Sean, it was uh, 
Yeah, I remember going to see Goldfinger at the uh, at the cinema, and I went with my dad, and uh, my dad was a big Connery fan, because Connery was kind of, like I said, and he was an Edinburgh guy as well. I mean, it wasn't just that he was Scottish, he was Edinburgh, and he actually, he polished coffins in Haddington. That's a true story. Uh, seemingly, it was, uh, some people say it was by the railway, what used to be the railway, it's called something else now, some soccer bar thing, you know. Or it was down at the uh, the Nungate Bridge, but he used to polish coffins in Harrington. But he was um, he's a bodybuilder and all sorts of stuff, and and it was uh, it was kind of he was Edinburgh. He was kind of I remember him doing um, kind of voiceovers and some black and white movies. He did some fantastic things, but he, I remember this old Edinburgh one, and. Um, he was kind of walking about Edinburgh, reminiscing. He came from Fountain Bridge, which meant he was a heart supporter. And that was one of the things that kind of like also popped in my head. It was like, you know, when it came up in the mall and at the semi-final, like Sean Connery's dead. I'm going like, oh, and I always remember. It was, I went to, a, 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 it was a football function and there was somebody from the Edinburgh Evening News. I think it was a journalist from Edinburgh Evening News that worked in the, the sports column. And uh, he was a big friend of Sean's. And um, he was addressing, you know, this kind of, you know, um, black tie dinner thing. And he said, oh, I was uh, speaking to, oh, I was speaking a big, kicked it. I was uh, speaking at a big time and I said to him, I said, you know, because, um, uh, you know, I reminded him that he was, you know, he was allegedly, actually, he was a trialist as a goalkeeper for Hearts. He was a Hearts supporter. He was a Fountain Bridge guy. Later on, he went to support Rangers and went and kicked around with Sir David Murray. But, you know, back in the early days, seemingly he was a Hearts supporter. And the story was that he actually auditioned. <laughs> he was, uh, he went on trial for Hearts as a goalkeeper. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it was like he was supposedly a goalkeeper and a damn good one. And um, anyway, this journalist said, the black tie down. Oh, he went, he said, <clears throat> Sean, he said, uh, he says, you know, I said, you know, you're um, an actor. He said, you know, he said, you know, if you, you, you know, if you, 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 you done well and all that as an actor, it's great. He says, but you know, you know, if you'd stuck at the football, Sean, he said, you know, you could have owned a pub by now. <laughs> Brilliant. Could have owned a pub by now. But yeah, it's like Scotland lost, you know, one of its most famous sons. And um, like I said, Goldfinger with my dad. I mean, my, my dad and I always went to Bond films together. I mean, remember seeing from Russia with Love as well. But I mean, it was like the, all the Bonds when they came out, it was the Sean Connery Bond. It's a, I got to admit, and this might sound like sacrilege to some people, but I love the Daniel Craig Bond. I love the Daniel Craig Bond. It's like, he, he is... He very much has that Sean Connery vibe to him. And um, some of the Connery bones, they did, they did get a bit cheesy towards the end. But, it was, uh, but the early ones were... He was just a great figure. My favourite movies that Sean Connery did, The Hill, which I thought was an absolutely fantastic film. Uh, Roy Kinnear was in that one. And it was uh, that was about the, the, the prisoner of what... The, 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 the military prison in... in um, in North Africa. The Hill was just an incredible film. And my dad, that was one of my dad's favourite movies. Another one I really liked uh, was one that he did with Ian Holm and was it called The Suspect? Um, and it was about, uh, he played the part of a, a, a really rough kind of tumble down rebus type 
kind of um, detective, and he was investigating Ian Holm for the, the, the murder of a child, and it was I mean, as a as a psychological kind of edgy kind of really dark piece. It was incredible, and seemingly he he um, demanded from the studio that he did those movies. Um, after he did Bond, so basically he said, yeah, I'll do Bond, but I want to do these films with other people. And um, and they were totally out of the, out, out with the Bond character. And he, he was a great actor. One of my favourite ones was The Man Who Would Be King, and Simone and I watched that on the Sunday. <clears throat> they had Michael Caine and Sean Connery together. It was an absolutely brilliant pairing. And I've been a Rudyard Kipling book. It was it was amazing. It was a, it was just a fantastic, all round great movie. But um, but yeah, and I had a tear in my on on Saturday actually. It was um, it, it just it just took me completely by surprise. It was like bam, Sean's gone, and uh, and it was kind of you know it was a big part of my childhood, a big part of a lot of people's childhoods. You know I think you know, and um, he'll be sadly missed. And solely missed and never be replaced. I think his presence on screen was absolutely amazing, and uh, and he's one of the guys. I, I'm, I, I would have, I never met him. Never even. I wasn't even in any company with him, right? And uh, and I'm, I'm glad because I think he would have scared the shit out of me. I mean, even me. I think he was. He was probably. Um, I'd be. I would have been more daunted to have met Sean Connery than probably any other person that was walking on earth. It was, um, because he, he just a, a huge figure. And, um, but like I said, it was, you know, getting hit on that Saturday morning, it kind of, you know, and it was all going on. And, it, and I was I was going to post something up and I, I thought, no, I'm going to leave it till tonight. And, um, you know, there was, because I mean, everybody, every, everybody was kind of posted up memories of Sean Connery, Dave Barris. Had a, a great one because I think he actually was at the premiere of A Man Who Would Be King because he was Sean Connery was heavily involved in, in Scottish cinema. He was heavily involved in Scotland and it was when he moved to Spain and he was he still you know proclaimed himself as, as a, a, a supporter of independent, Scottish independence. He was kind of decried, you know, oh, you live in Spain. And he used to donate a lot of money to the Scottish National Party and um, he was it was kind of banned. He was banned from because he, he he lived abroad, but I mean it was um he was decried for it, but for living in Spain. But I mean I always saw him as being you know a, a huge supporter of uh, this country, this country Scotland. So uh, so yeah, it was it was it was a toughie. It was um you know it was uh yeah anyway, and then they Saturday and then I made a terrible mistake. I mean a very very bad mistake because what I did was. The Hibs game was <clears throat> at five o'clock and it started at four. And I was very nervous. I'd get very, very nervous before games. And, you know, I mean, I actually, before a match, I mean, you'd think I was playing. I mean, like, I, I kind of get the butterflies and the fear and everything. And um, so I started drinking at four o'clock. <laughs> I'd done my first bottle of wine before the game even kicked off. And of course the game unfolded and you know it was a decent game and uh Hearts <clears throat> went one nil up, we scored two minutes later, went in extra time. By the time we went in extra time, hadn't planned for extra time, had I? <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of another story, but uh, 
and planned for extra time. So by the time by the time we were getting into that and and it was I was a, a bit of a mess. Right? But I was still there because the adrenaline was holding me together. You know how it works. Adrenaline's just it's keeping you there, keeping you there. And then of course he has got the penalty off the bar, bing, and I knew that Sean Connery was up there laughing his tits off, right? And it was um, and I, you know, and on top of that, before the game, if you wanted another really shy omen, and it was a, a dreadful thing was uh, Zalukas, the Hearts captain, died at age 36. I, said, I don't know exactly what he died of, but it was like, he was a great player. He was a very, very, very good player. Lithuanian guy. Played for Rangers, played down south as well. And he, it was announced immediately before the match that he died. And I just went, oh, it's just all not happening today. And of course, the ball went off the bar. Three minutes later, Hearts get a penalty. Bam, bam, bam. Game over. And the adrenaline goes... Bing! And I went, boom! Oh, what a mess. So, in order to keep up the happy frame of the whole day, we decided, my wife and I decided to watch, um, we watched Bob on the 4th of July, <laughs> the Oliver Stone uh, film. So, because I've been, I've been reading this Oliver Stone uh, book called Chasing the Light, so we started watching Oliver Stone movies. So, um, we watched Bob on the 4th of July, nice happy film, but to end a happy day, you know, and it was uh, so, and I was in bed about eleven o'clock. I think it was, um, you know, I, I wasn't kind of angry or anything. I mean, I can, you know, I've kind of with football now. I kind of, um, you know, as I, I said last week, it's like, you know, if I'd been if I was seventeen year old, it would have been Wednesday by the time I was kind of like, you know, coming out of the room. But I mean, it was like, you know, bam! It's just a game. There's worse things happen at sea, you know. And it wasn't a humping. It was like it was a, there was a. It was, the difference was, you know, about that much wood, right? That was on the, the kind of bar. But um, so Sunday woke up and then had kind of. Sunday we just decided we'll do nothing, so we just watched movies. I started, I've been watching. Simone and I have been watching Shit's Creek, which if you've not seen it on Netflix, it's brilliant. It's wonderful writing. And uh, so we watched that and then went in the movies again and watched Oliver Stone's El Salvador. And uh, I'm kind of moving my way through the, El the Oliver Stone movies. We did Platoon a couple of weeks back. And uh, and it was, it, it's, it's great. It's a great autobiography, like really cool. And re I relate to a lot of the places where he went, you know, when the pressure came on, his creativity, etc. I mean, it's, it's worth the read, Chasing the Light. And uh, so that was Sunday. And since then, it's just been domestic repairs. The cooker got repaired on, on the, the Tuesday and that guy had to come back on a Wednesday because all, they all went off again, blah, blah, blah. And then we had a dishwasher went down and blah, blah, blah. Then I'm on the phone to Royal Mail. I'm on the phone to the software people. And, you know, emails flying back and forth. Just shite all week, right? And then Rab, Rab, who helps me in the garden, he went down where his, his pelvis has shifted and his spine's gone out and his knee's gone bang. So uh, he's out in the field at the moment, chained up, and we're waiting on the vet to come and put him down later on today, which is a real shame because he's been a very hard worker, Rab. Um, but seriously, though, it's like a, I really feel for him. He's gone through a crappy one. But yeah, the whole week's just been wild. I mean, um, I Tara, my daughter's dog, was throwing up blood and... You know, it was just, it was, it was like East End, East Lothian Enders the whole week, right? 
and oh yeah, the, when the dishwasher came, I'd measured it all up, and it was like, and it was like millimeters off at the back. It was, and it kind of fed into this thing, and the two guys that were like that came and put in were like swearing rather a lot. <laughs> Bastard. So anyway, that went to build wee pillows for that, and but I wanted to get in the garden, but my whole week's just been every time I'm trying to go out there and. And do stuff. I've just been like, you know, tied up and crap. And on top of all that, it's like, you know, there's the American election, which kind of, you know, I've just been fascinated by it. It's um, <clears throat> the organisation that goes in it all is is phenomenal. I mean, the, 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 you know, what they do across that country with all the states and the votes and everything, and um, and it's the numbers. <laughs> When I first went to America and and, and and came across things like baseball and things and stats, right? And it's like, you know, American people and stats. It's just, you know, you get a picture and you say, how much has he thrown? How bad did he throw this? Da, 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 what was he, you know, like pages and pages of stats. And it's been the same with this election. I mean, I, mean, I find it fascinating watching them go through counties and, and county by county within and states and then dividing it all down and going this percentage thing and that blah 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 and it's been I'm just going like bah how'd you get your head around that? And the guys are doing it. I mean you know on the night of the actual election I kinda stayed up. I I knew obviously that there was gonna be nothing was going to be decided, you know, for the next two days, I thought. And uh, so we stayed up to about one o'clock, and then you know, I heard the bits and pieces of the speeches and things. And um, I woke up the next morning, and nothing had happened apart from like Ferrari, and uh, you know, it was, nothing was kind of really decided. And it was like you know, moving into I mean, the whole day, and we just we just had the TV on the whole day, moving across. And Steve answers, he's texting me going, like, this is happening, this is happening. The percentage has gone up here, da da da, and um, and it's been going on and on. And even last night, we were watching, you know, down to, what is it, five states, whatever it is now. And it's, we were sitting up there watching. We were up till half past one in the morning. And the only reason I stayed up, really, because I wanted to hear Trump's kind of speech, which was, quite frankly, unnerving. Uh, it was, uh, it was bizarre. It was an absolutely bizarre speech. And it was virgin on incoherent. And it was, it was quite frightening. And just hearing this kind of thing go on. But I mean, it's been fascinating, you know, this whole electoral process, the voting process. And, you know, you know what Trump was saying last night, you know, it just wasn't making sense at all. Absolutely not at all. And it was like all this, the mail-in votes, which you know was going to happen because of COVID. And because, you know, and the president had turned around and said, to his, his guys, you know, you know, the male's crap, they're a voting person. So a lot of the Trump supporters and the Republicans voted in person and a lot of the Democrats because they're like, you know, wearing masks and stuff. It's, um, it's uh, you know, they were putting mail order and, it's, and then you were watching, I mean, as was proven yesterday with Ohio, where all the mail-in votes were counted before the, the votes on, the, on election day, which meant it was totally Democrat and it went totally Republican. Of course, now, for the last two days, we've been watching, you know, Georgia and, and Pennsylvania and, and just watching this stuff, and it's fascinating. All the little counties and, you know, how it all works and things. And, um, 
But the other thing that's really come across is how divided America is. It's, uh, I think that's the kind of sad thing about it all. I mean, it's, it's just, and, you know, being Scottish, I mean, you know, having come through, you know, the first referendum and having come through Brexit, you know, and sense the division that was caused by, by those, you know, in particular, you know, you know, after the referendum, I mean, you know, there was the frack on George Square when the the yes guys were kind of having a bit of a party and there was a bunch of no people came down and it all kicked off. And it's like, you know, that's George Square in Glasgow, right? And, you know, as everybody, as you were watching leading up to the election, watching on the doors getting boarded up and things, it was like, you know, you wake away, it's like they've got guns out there. You know, this isn't going to be a case of, you know, a bit of a swedge. It was a... And um, yeah, and then you could you could sense the the uneasiness of it all, and you know, and whoever's going to win, and it, it looks like Biden, and you know, I don't like Trump. I, do, I don't like the man. He's just don't, I don't like him, and it's um, I don't want to go in here because I know there's some people here that don't like me, you know, down crying, but I just don't like the man, and. Um, and, you know, if Joe Biden's got it, then I have to say that, you know, I feel a bit safer, you know. But it's us, I think. But we'll move on to that because state of mind absolutely walked the vote today. And uh, and I was going like, you know, what am I going to play? You know, I'm going to do a live version because it's changed so much over the years. But, yeah. Well. But, yeah. So yeah, but and on top of that, with the the, the 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 presidential election, you know, like I said, there was always there was still things coming at me. Oh wait, and then Pang, John Sessions, and um, John Sessions died. I think he was I think he was sixty seven. You know, wasn't that older than me? And I'd lost contact with John ages ago because I don't know if you can see this, and it's going to be reversed. But there we are. That's on the set of Jute City and Ullapool. And that was way back. Jute City was the first... Um, Jute City was the first kind of... Um, Real drama, big drama. I did where it was it was kind of like a, a multi part, and I had a, a really good character in it. And it was like there was uh, Davy Hara was in it. So I nearly watched it again on Braveheart. Um, Peter Mullen. Um, there was a couple of other. I'm trying to think who else was all in that. Um, and there was John Sessions, and we ended up in Ullapool and. Uh, well, it was kind of weird. I mean, Ullapool's a kind of strange and beautiful place. And uh, we were all staying in the in the, the hotel down in the front and I was coming up for my last scene and it was basically, I'd get my foot blown off. I can't remember how, but I had to get this explosively, a Dot Martin that was kind of wired and stuff like that. And it was uh, all very tricky. But we had a lot of time off. And uh, so we wandered the streets of Ullapool um, up and down the grid. <laughs> And and John and I got to know each other, and we we had a, a fair few swallows. And he was actually a, a big fan of Marillion, and um, and he was a great guy, a real lovely guy. And um, I saw him once, years later, 
And uh, but it, it was it, I'm going through a bad time at that point. But he was really sad. He was a very funny, very clever man, very clever, and a fantastic mimic, as you know from the spitting and mish stuff and all the bits and pieces he did. He was, and you know, in the pub in Ullapool at night, he, he, he kept us entertained. I mean, he was he was funny, funny guy. But yeah. So then, as I said, you know, John Sessions passing away, which I think was on Wednesday. And I, I didn't react to that either, you know. I don't want to post up and do the... the uh, it's easier to just talk here to you, you know. But um, So anyway, so we went back and, and, and uh, you know, every day, every night we've been staying up till really late. Last night I said it was late. And then this morning, I mean, I was up at 8 o'clock and the first thing I did was make a cup of coffee, get through, put the TV on and see what happened. And it's still not over. It's just going on and on. So you never know, we might actually be through there and that would be the irony of all irony if we're through there listening to the state of mind and some big decision goes bang, right? That would be the weirdness of the weirdness, right? I was going to tell you something else. It was like, you know, a strange coincidence that happened and all that. But yeah, I mean, the state of mind. Um, I was in Berlin when when it was happening and it was Colonel Oliver North and oh yeah I've got I forgot to get things talk amongst yourselves we'll be back in two minutes coming back coming back coming back coming back I had to go through, that was an acid, and the printer went down. Here it is. Who did I write it? Yeah, Oliver North, right? This is really interesting. I, I, I hadn't heard about the guy before. This is 19, like I say, 88, 89. And I was kind of, my eyes were opening up to a lot of stuff. I knew lots of bits and pieces of things, but I was very much more open to what was going on around me politically and internationally, right? And this was a weird thing in all this, right? But I'm going to read you this. Oliver Lawrence North is an American political commentator, television host, military historian, author, and retired United States Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel. A veteran of the Vietnam War, North was a National Security Council staff member during the Iran-Contra affair a political scandal of the late 1980s. It involved the illegal sale of weapons to the Khomeini government of the Islamic Republic of Iran to encourage the release of American hostages then held in Lebanon. North formulated the second part of the plan, which was to divert proceeds from the arms sales to support the contra-rebel groups in Nicaragua, sales which had been specifically prohibited under the Boland Amendment. North was granted limited immunity from prosecution in exchange for testifying before Congress about the scheme. He was initially convicted on three felony charges, but the convictions were vacated and reversed and all charges against him were dismissed in 1991. Wow. And that was the guy that I saw on screen. And I saw this kind of, you know, he was like, you know, clear cut, you know, American military guy. And he was standing there, and I always remember the hand being up. And I'd got to know a lot about the background and, and, and read a lot. And, you know, I, as far as I was concerned, as far as I could read, he was guilty of sin. 
And he was eventually proven to be, right? And, um... And he was lying in front of Congress. And round about that time as well, I was, you know, we were dealing with Thatcher and Margaret Thatcher and the Tory party across here. So, I mean, it was like there was a political rotten stew around that was bubbling away. And, um... And I was getting, and I was becoming a little bit politicised back then on the on the vigil album. And I know people, you know, some of you go kind of like, oh, he's going on about politics again. It's very hard for me to kind of like, you know, not make social commentary without getting involved in politics, which is what I've always said about but Marine. I don't get overtly political because as soon as you do that, you're you're dating, time stamping, you're 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 pushing yourself into areas, you know, if you're writing songs about being specific politics, you know. And um, so you've got to keep this kind of amorphous attitude to it. And, and that was kind of what I tried to get in state of mind. And it was, um, and I was in Berlin watching Oliver North stand there with his hand in the air, you know, going like, you know, I didn't do this, didn't do that. And as the years went by and I found out more and more about it, and it was, you know, allegedly, it was a lot more complicated than that. And... Um, and I think, again, watching the Oliver Stone film, Salvador, which was about the San, um, Sandinistas and, you know, about what was happening kind of after Nicaragua when, you know, Reagan and the domino theory, which they were used in Southeast Asia, you know, where, you know, we're all going to be, this, the communists are coming at us and, you know, we got to, like, you know, support these governments and which was why America was heavily involved in there at the time. And the thing was... <clears throat> the 19th of what was it, AA, it was um, the Nelson Mandela gig. And at the Nelson Mandela gig, I was asked to do a couple of photo ops. For London, yeah. Oh, fuck, there it is. This is a weird photograph, and it's all. <laughs> it's all back to front, okay? Right. Um, let me see. That's Jackson Brown, myself, Meatloaf, uh, Daryl Hannah, uh, Wee Stevie. Um, then it was uh, one of the Archbishops of South Africa and Nelson Mandela's lawyer and Jim Kerr. Right. Look at that shot. Amazing. Young Lynn back then. Yeah, I've got to meet Jackson Brown, which was just incredible. Meatloaf already knew and stuff. And, um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, people would, you know, there was a lot of politics getting talked to, talked about at that time. And this is kind of like, you know, you've got to put this in context as well. This is when I'm moving kind of out of Marillion. So this is Big Wedge time. This is kind of internal, writing internal exile. This is being aware of the, the minor strikes, being aware or oh, the poll tax up in Scotland, being aware of the rise of the SNP and, and everything else. I mean, it was like suddenly there was a whole thing about me and there was coming all over and off with his hand in the air. And um, I think you've got to look at, I don't know, t taking my relationship with America. It was... Uh, when I was a kid, you know, America was like, you know, it was like the wild place. I mean, it was just... 
it was America. It was the special place. Everybody wanted to go to America. And in fact, my uh, great-grandmother went away to America and visited Chicago. And she went on her own. Um, she'd just been uh, widowed. And she decided she was going to Chicago because I actually, believe it or not, have some parts of my family, perhaps in Illinois somewhere, in, in Michigan, round about, I don't know, it's in that Chicago area. There was a bunch of my family that came from the Glasgow side that went across there. And, um, and she went there on her own. And that was in 19... Let me think. It was about 1936, I think. And, um, and I've still got the big... I've got these huge... Um, uh, wooden suitcases, right? Most of which keep my Skelectric Tosh, remember that? And I've got a lot of Skelectric in these containers and it's got the, still got the shipping, <clears throat> it's got the liner labels still on them. And uh, she went away across on her own and met up with somebody and came back. And she brought me back a real cowboy outfit, right? And it was, uh, it was incredible, you know, it was, it was given to me, you know, when I was really wee. And, um, and my dad's best friend, well, the, my dad's best friend was called Laurie, and um, Laurie Curry, and they went across and they lived in Detroit, and he used to um, he used to make the models for the. This is what I mean, way back in the days, man. It's when they made wooden models of cars to check the aerodynamics, and he made all these models, and which was like amazing. And he lived in Detroit, which was, I mean, you know, wow. It was for me, for a kid, it was like he was the most exotic person ever. And they sent me across when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon for Christmas. I got a, a sweatshirt, a white sweatshirt with kind of like the, the NASA thing and, and all the rest of it on it, and I thought that was brilliant. Well, the only problem was he was about three sizes too small. <laughs> but I wore it with pride. <laughs> and I remembered um, it's, it's, it's a strange time, but it's uh, Laurie and Betty were my mum and dad's friends, and they used to come across and, and see us, and they had these tans and things, and it was like talk to American, and it's like oh. Americans, right? And, uh, and and David was the son, and I remember David and I. It was T Rex had uh, um, Jeepster out, I think it was, and I was through in my granddad's room that I told you about before, in in the back of Land Fine House in, in Gleepsley, and uh, we just kept on playing it, and we had these Schweppes bottles, <laughs> and for some reason I don't know what it was. Maybe this is why I went into the business. And we started with these ginger ale bottles and we were drinking loads of ginger ale and spraying it all over the place and stuff and going nuts in this room, right? And uh, listening to T-Rex Jeepster. And David, I don't even know where he is now. I've heard, I think he's in Texas, right? That Laurie and, and, and Betty have both died. She moved down to Florida, I think, and, and Laurie died. And um, But David, I think, and he's called David Curry, and he's, um, I've heard... <laughs> He's actually a, a minister, a, a church, a minister of the church down in, in Texas somewhere. So, uh, which I mean, <laughs> whew, 
how we both went our different ways. <laughs> <laughs> Big wedge with this must be subconscious thing in there. <laughs> I remember just spraying all this ginger ale going nah, da, bam, bam, do, 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 bam, 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 <laughs> as you do <laughs> but now we do it with champagne bottles in the night <laughs> but yeah so it's all this shit going down but, it's, but I mean that was America and it was like you know and, it, and you know it was, it was always a place I wanted to go to and then you know on, on after script when we were in Yamaya we went across there in 83 and I loved it it was brilliant and um and every every kind of day was just like wow. It was like, <laughs> it was like wow. I said this last week. It was like you know every truck stop buying cowboy boots and shit. It was like just amazing. And um, but you know I didn't really know anything about it. And then you know as you go over there and you discover things and blah blah blah. And then it moved forward. And then we're in the in the eighties. And um, there's Cardinal Albanoff. Yeah. And what you, some people might not know, but um, the American Declaration of Independence was actually um, very much based on um, uh, the Declaration of Our Broth in 1320, which was when Robert the Bruce wrote to the Pope at the time and um, basically said, we are now an independent nation. We want to be recognised because we'd been excommunicated for... <laughs> Somebody got murdered in a chapel, <laughs> but it's uh, but anyway. So the 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 in the, the, the Declaration of Independence was actually based on 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 basically the Declaration of Arbroath, which was written, and the Declaration of Independence. Most of it was done by Scots, but I loved it, and it was like the last thing was the Constitution, and it was that we the people, and I just love that. And it was, I, I, I took a couple of notes on it. Right? Uh, it was um, the Constitution of the United States of America is the supreme law of the United States, empowered with the sovereign authority of the people by the framers and the consent of the legislature of the states, blah, blah, blah. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defence promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Right? We the people. Right? And when it was actually drafted, it was, was it 1787, it was, it was actually written, the preamble was written by a guy called Governor Morris, but it was mostly written by James Madison. And, um, and it was 13 states at the time. And this is a weird thing. This is a... Right? It was the, the 13 states, and that was it. That was the 13 stars of that original kind of assemb assemblance of states, the original kind of United States. And as an aside, when we went across to... Uh, uh, to the states to play with the the kind of clutching at straws thirteen star tour, it was like when we went went there, you know, it was by pure chance that it was like it was the thirteen star. We went out, you know, with a, a shirt with the thirteen stars of America on it, the original thirteen, which has got a lot of other connotations and things. I won't. There's a dark thing goes on in there as well, but yeah, James Madison put it together and. um 
And it was uh, the preamble with the people was at my guy called Governor Morris. And he went on to become a French ambassador for America. But it was that we the people, because they, they didn't want to write we, the, 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 the 13 states of America, like blah, blah, blah. And that's how it became we the people. And then it was Colonel Oliver North, you know? And as I said, as I was allegedly told about later, there was a lot more shenanigans, which seems to be a word of the moment, as used by Donald last night. Because there is rumours Right? And I don't want to go into queuing on fucking stuff, but some things I've heard about and stuff, but the thing was that the arms that were going across there, there was also a lot of drugs involved and nobody talked about that. You've seen it in movies, it's been referred to in movies, but there was also a lot of drug exchanges that were going on between um, basically South America and North America. There was all been organised and it was all tied in, it's all over nothing and the guns going out there and then there was drugs coming out of allegedly drugs coming out of Syria and stuff. And seemingly, allegedly, da 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 that was one of the reasons why the Pan Am flight went down over Rockabee. That was one of the was one of the theories that there was something to do with all the shenanigans that were going on down there between the Hezbollah and Iran and, you know, black ops kind of American military and stuff. And that was one of the reasons why the bomb went on, not more about Frankfurt, but that's a whole, whole other Pandora's box of stuff. But in the middle of it all was Colonel Oliver North, and I was in Berlin and looking at the TV and going, you're a liar. You're an absolute liar. And you could see him, you know, when he was really put to the test, you could see him shaking. You know, you could see that, you see the nerve kicking. And that was kind of what inspired it. And like I said, you know, at the time with, with Thatcher and everything else and, and, you know, the Reagan thing and everything. And, and that, that's why I kind of put it all together. And um, and it was state of mind. And it just made perfect sense. A lot of people, you know, well, I say a lot of people. There were, there were people that thought it was an anti-American song. It was never an anti-American song. The same was Big Wedge was never an anti-American song. Big Wedge was a statement about, you know, about corporations and shit. <laughs> As I said before, it's what my, the old Australian merchandisers, you know, clutch used to call it, Wedge. And, you know, and that was the thing with Vigil. It was like, you know, I I, I, I wouldn't have got away with State of Mind on, on, um, on an album that I was doing, I was writing with the other guys. There's no way. And... You know, they, they didn't like the idea of Big Wedge and, and because EMI was, they, they, they wanted us to break America and what they didn't want was bloody lyricists writing songs that were perceived perhaps as being anti-American, <laughs> defeating the purpose. Write a song about heartbreak. <laughs> Find another girl's name. <laughs> you know. and, um, but yeah, so with Vigil, I could kind of play about. Internal Exile was written during the Vigil time. It was written here in this very room. And that's just the weird thing. And that's what, um, I was kind of glad because it was the same as um, uh, like last week when we had a couple of strange moments. I'm just taking a note because I just remembered someone else I want to talk about. But yeah, so Stay Mind was written here and and I was introduced by, to Hal Lindis by um, Chris Kimsey. And Chris Kimsey and I have been friends and we've been friends for years and years and years. And 
he was very um, supportive when I left the band. Um, I talked a lot to Chris about the situation at the time. We had a lot of very private conversations about the situations that were going on. And when I left the band, he knew that I was looking for a writer. And his wife, um, uh, Chrissy, was great friends with the wife of Hal Lindis. And Hal Lindis was the, the guitarist next to Mark Knopfler in Dire Straits. And it was like, wow, you know, the Dire Straits guitarist, you know? And, um, and Hal came up here. Hal came up here and, um, and he worked with, with Mickey and I. And it was Hal and Mickey but, but, that, that kind of formulated that music idea, but it was Hal's, you know, <coughs> Hal found the rhythm. He was a, a lovely guy, a very talented writer, and went on to really make a huge name for himself out in, in California, uh, writing a lot of soundtrack stuff. And he's, he's been named with a lot of movies, and I think he picked up an awful lot of awards. But I kind of lost contact. He did, he did the, the one gig at Lockerbie itself, right? Which again, ties and ties. <clears throat> and so Al did it. And, but he, you know, he would have loved to have gone back to Dire Straits. And I think he was kind of hoping that something was going to open up on that because it was, uh, you know, it was a big band. <laughs> and, um, but he dived across to America and, you know, when we discussed, you know, the possibility of him coming in to um, take on the guitarist position, it was just, there was, he couldn't commit and I couldn't really, you know, deal with the financial sides of uh, everything at that point. And it was, um, so he left and went away to California. And then his life did what his life did. And it was, it was interesting. There's a couple of, Hal stories, but I'm keeping them for the book. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So when Al came up, we kind of got the groove of state of mind together, and I loved all the using that vocal percussion, the the breathing, you know. And it, it just had to be a really trippy song. Robin Bolt would come in and, and, and play it brilliantly. And <coughs> the song would morph. You know, I think throughout the years, the keys obviously changed. You know, when we last played it, there's a great version. And I, I did think about playing this version tonight, which is the version that's on Parley with Angels, which was a, a really good inversion, a really good version of it. Because I think during the Fishheads Club tour, when Foz and Frank and I started playing about with it and it was just totally stripped down and you had to find that groove just between the three of you. And the dynamics were just so beautiful to play with. And that was kind of like when the, that end section of the song kind of moved over and, and, and split up and it the, the big drop. The, um, you know, the silence, right? Which I learned of... Jim Morrison, it was the Jim Morrison trick that he used way back. It's like, you don't come out of the silence when you've got the place in silence. And I've talked about this before. I'm going to be repeating myself these days. It's good, too many programs. But um, but that whole bit of state of mind where you can just build it and have that melody just sitting 
sliding all over that rhythm and then just you know pick it up and then take it down and then smack and then it was it's, it was a, it's a fantastic song to sing and it's especially when you go into the that subverse that you know the, the emotive kind of the, the real way when we the people have our, our, our backs to the wall you know do we the people then assume control you know they were powerful powerful lyrics and they still resonate and it's funny because my mum actually said a few years ago <laughs> how it turns around with cycles and my mum said that she, you know she imagined here in the state of mind and that state of mind was a, a big hit single this was about three four years ago when another political thing was happening right but it got ignored the thing was it was the I thought it was a, a a good statement for me to put out as a as a solo artist. You know, I think it. I'll, I need to say, you know, I was doing something that was different for Marillion, That was a little bit, I don't know, relevant. What do you call it? Political, um, jarring, um, thoughtful. I don't know. I don't know what you use, but I wanted that as the first single, and then EMI wanted big wedge. He might want a big wedge out as their main one, and they didn't want to run with it. So we said, "Okay, state mind, let's go out with it." And um, and I think it went to, I think it went to number thirty-five. I can't remember. I, I, I don't really do charts. You know, because what number were you with that? <laughs> big wedge was nineteen. I remember that because, um, but it was. I think state mind was thirty-five, but it didn't get any radio play. Because they never say it, ever since the Sex Pistols, like, they never say it, it's banned, right? They just don't play it, right? And um, and it should have been a played song as my first single. And there was a couple of people expressed dissatisfaction with the, the, the political content of the lyric, and that was really what it was. Everybody just went, it's too political, we can't play it. And, um, and it sat, and uh, I was really pissed off but um but the song's grown and it's held its own all the way through this and it's still absolutely nailed to the button relevant you know and i think this week you know uh, you know watching you know what's coming out of the uk government and you know everybody being locked in again nobody's sure what the hell's going down you know should you know etc etc and you know, when you're aware of the money that's behind all this, and you know, I was actually thinking, you know, because I mean, you know, the, just as a little aside, it's like everybody's getting kicked to shit financially. Every country is getting kicked to shit financially by this COVID thing, and we're all borrowing money. Where do we borrow the money from? Uh, so we're all kind of borrowing it from the same place, aren't we? I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit naive here, but let's play with me, okay? So we're all borrowing the money from the same place. So like the same kind of, you know, big people, right? So if everybody's borrowing America and Belgium and all in Italy and everybody else is borrowing money, maybe, you know, there was a thing that was touted quite a few years ago. It's like, maybe it might be an idea to walk away, you know, to give, to walk away from the debt, forgive the debt, right? So go, okay, let's start again. We're all in shit. <coughs> so rather than deal with this, why don't we help the recovery by kind of writing off a load of the debt? So whoever's got the debt, write it off. I don't know. 
Just an idea I'm throwing at you. Discuss. Yeah. But yeah. But talking about relevance of songs, for God's sake. I mean, the other night, I mean, again, part of this whole week, right, was Vienna, right? And, you know, there was the, the five people that were um, murdered in the terrorist attack. You know, I mean, as well as Nice and as well as Leon, you know. But it was Austria and it was like, and it just caught my ear and it was um, Vienna, terrorist attack. And it was right outside the synagogue. And um, and that was outside the main synagogue. And that was the area that I walked by with the American DJ, right? And that was the synagogue I walked by and where the idea for white Russians sparked off. <laughs> and I'm just going, Phew. I mean, your head's probably spinning as well. It's like there's weird coincidences flashing about you. But like, but yeah, and it was like it came up in the news. Austria synagogue, five people dead. You know, automatic weapon. And um, it kind of hit hard again. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff that you know that I've been writing about. You know, like why Russian was clutching. You know, vigil, state of mind, big wedge, and it's it's, it's not going away. It's just it's just forever there. And now we're Weltschmerz, and I had a huge, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, I have a frog in my throat. Um, I had a huge interview with Mick Wall, who's a classic rocker doing a, a, a big piece on me for the, I think it's the, maybe the November issue or, or the December issue, I'm not sure yet. So Mick and I, and, and you know, we were, we were talking about stuff, and you know, we were, we were actually on the phone for about an hour and a half, or Skyping each other for an hour and a half. And I love him. I love Mick. He's he's great. And like, I mean, I I remember sitting in a in a bedroom in Berlin, and it was the famous interview that's in, in the book where I I, I remember said to us, "Kaylee's going to be a massive hit." <laughs> Gallus is hell. It's good. It's going to be a hit. It's number one. Uh, but yeah, but I was so convinced about Miss Lee Sheldon back then, long before it was released, that it was this was going to be a major album. And talking with Mick, we were both off our faces. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I mentioned to Mick, I said like we were talking about it, and about there was one of the questions that had come in quite a few weeks ago, and it was, uh, you know, Mick Wall's book was really positive, but at the same time I was actually leaving, and we were talking about that during the interview about how, you know. You know, he was in San Francisco and he said, I went to San Francisco and he said, you know, you played a, a killer set to like a, a, a really, really big audience. And he said America was there. It wasn't. It wasn't, you know. And he wasn't aware of the underlying factors. And I was actually telling him about, you know, he knew some of the stuff that was going on, but he wasn't that parley to a lot of the stuff on the outside or the inside that was happening. And, uh, but, you know, he said at the time he thought that really we were going to break the states. But we were only big in pockets. And, um, and it's going to be like... And it's been interesting. When I, was watching, I was watching the maps, the electoral maps, during the, the presidential... Well, Sutton's Bear Root Strawberries, only 84 pence a plant. Um, Dobbies will be up next. So, uh, oh, by the way, it's the things that come up on my screen while I'm actually... when I'm talking to the camera. So it's just it's Gmail messages, but 
So I'm watching the, the electro kind of stuff and I was looking at Ohio and it was like really strange and I was like, oh God, I remember all this. And I remember playing Pittsburgh and, you know, I remember Youngstown and Cincinnati and playing Toledo and, you know, and then, you know, I'm playing Philadelphia and, and, and Pennsylvania and stuff like that. And it was, um, you know, and, but I was seeing all these wee places all scarred about going like, God, that was the 1983 tour, which was the tour, you know, that was, um, should have taken us further until Andy Ward had his kind of breakdown and we all came back before we got to places like Raleigh in Texas and, you know, all the southern states that I really wanted to play. I mean, I didn't even play Atlanta until, you know, what was that, 2000? First we played Atlanta was when we went down for Wes's wedding. That was how long ago that was. But it's been interesting, you know, because it's making me, it's been making me think, this whole week's been making me think about America and, and kind of, you know, how it's all been, you know, zapping on and things. But we're moving up to seven. So maybe I should take you through, because it's like, I will say, when I was listening to the track earlier, because I thought, am I going to play the live version from Parley with Angels, which is brilliant, or do I go for the original? I thought, I'll go for the original. But when I put the live version up, it was like the TV was on in the background and somebody was, the, the sound was down. And it was just watching, there was all these this black and white footage and things, all that was coming out of America. It was kind of like a, a montage over a CNN advert or whatever it was. And it was like, it was like watching the video for the song. The video for the song, by the way, was done up at, uh, what was it, Shepparton? I think it was Shepparton with a big pond and stuff. And that was just a great video to make. I loved that. And um, using the shadows that we used on the Fugazi tour, but I'm digressing. Right. Take a wee wander through. Is <clears throat> it the control room? Is we getting? Is we getting a bit tidied up? Now this was actually where you know this this room. If you where the the, the paintings are. That that was the back end of the room, a little room at the back. But this one here, through to the, the kitchen, and about the width of this room here. This was the this was the main rehearsal floor. And it was just a wooden floor and a crappy plaster plasterboard ceiling on it. There were a bunch of um uh, kind of that glass with a wire through it, protected glass went all along one side. There's a wee door went out there. And on the gentleman's excuse me demo, you can actually hear the apple trees that were on the other side of the windows, like bumping into the windows in, in the, the wind. You know, when we were writing it. But this is where Hal Lindis and Mickey Simmons and I, this is where we did all the we did all the work on State of Mind and the whole vigil album was all written in here. But now it's like the control room. Or the out of control room. <laughs> Depending on your mood. You right, Mum? And no. We got a draft. No, no, it's still Mum. The fire's on. Yeah, the fire's on. It has been getting really parky. So I've got this all set up for you tonight. So I've got the candles on. 49.5, in Pennsylvania. Tilt it down so you can get a light. 
I want you to get the wee candle effect. Oh, come on. There we go. Speakers to the right and the left. Mute button on the debris. Just get the wood lights sorted out for you because, you know. There we go. Oh shit, where's the remote? Bags. Okay. This has got John Giblin on bass. Um, John, was a, John Giblin was a Scottish guy and another little kind of twist of things. It was John Giblin and his wife that owned the manor house where we actually wrote the Misplaced Children album, just by pure coincidence. And John, John Giblin played for, he played with John Martin and he played with Kate Bush. And it was through his association with John Kelly, who was the producer of Vigil, that he got involved with, um, he ended up playing bass on State of Mind. But, ah, I've got to switch that bloody thing on. Here we go, coming at you, 3D.
mind. Yeah. And pause. He's having a bad time with the controls tonight. I'm not playing up like this, Sir <coughs> 1,553 ahead in Georgia. 13,000 Pennsylvania, 20,000 Nevada, and 43,000 in Arizona. I don't know. I was going to play the live version as well, but um, I'll dive and get back to the control room because of the questions and the screens through there. I thought I'd done well. I forgot to set up my bloody laptop through there now. So I've got to come through here and talk. I've got to bring you up a bit. Up a bit. Map a bit. Come up up here a bit, telescopic thing. Yes. And back again. Yeah. It's kind of... If you want a live one up, say, because it's a... I know a lot of you haven't... You've only heard that version. You've never heard the kind of ones up from, you know... Andrew Evans, David Scarlett, check your log burner, seal top left, I see a flame. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's, um, it's a morsel stove, it's brilliant. And um, it's one of the best things I ever got here. When I, like I said, when this was the studio, it was, um, you know, when I moved in here in, in the winter of uh, kind of 2000, it was a pretty horrific place. It, there was actually an outside toilet. The toilet was actually outside that w window. It was a little little brick building. And I had an outside toilet all the way through that first winter. And uh, I had a plastic shower in, in my bedroom and that was it. And, and an aluminium <laughs> sink. <laughs> I had a really big American fridge though and a huge TV. One couch, I had one half of the couch left. And I had my German Shepherd, but the German Shepherd had to be put down. I actually came in after the after that tour, and um, it was kind of the dog was looking at me over the thing, and it was a terrible problem. It couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle being in this place because I haven't lived in the house next door, and the dog kept on going through the house next door, and they had a bunch of kids. And the dog was like white tooth and white teeth, and it was like, and then his hips went. So I had it was a real dreary winter. It was an outside toilet, and within about a month of moving into this house, went into the studio, I had to put my dog down because uh, the hips had just gone completely. And it was like, it was pretty desperate times. But um, I no longer have an outside toilet, but I'm getting an outside toilet built because we need one for the outside, for the cabin, for the residence of the cabin. But yeah, I mean, uh, this is kind of, you know, where it was all at, and the morsel stove was kind of one of the best things I put in. But the thing is that all through in the, the studio floor, it's all flagstones, right? And they sit on sand, right? And a few winters, well, quite a few winters ago, I was bringing the logs in and I was having to chop them up and I didn't have a big kind of block. So I was I was tapping them straight on the on the flagstones. You know, I wasn't kind of going right through, but occasionally, right? And of course, I broke the flagstone. I mean, then over the years, the flagstone has disintegrated, the sand's moved. So, what's happened is the Morsel stove isn't sitting on a firm kind of footing at this moment in time, and it moves. And the, that thermal plaster that I've got around the, 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 the downpipe breaks. 
So there's a kind of strange thing happens with that and it doesn't heat up as much. And I've fixed this, I've fixed the actual thermal, the, the, the kind of thermal plaster around it. I've had it fixed about two times, three times now. And it, it wasn't until the second time that I realised that the reason why it was breaking was because I was thumping these logs on the sand base where the flagstones, where the morsel stove sits on. And that was why it was moving. And that is why you're seeing a small, tiny flame at the top of it. And I know I've got to get fixed. It's one of the many things I've got to get fixed. I was in, in, I was informed just the other day that my my shed, my wooden sheds now is, is, is all damp and it's all holy and there's water coming in everywhere and it's beyond repair. So I'm going to have to get another bloody shed. So this is what it's been like. It's been just continually chasing stuff that's been, been broken and things, you know. Callum McConnell, play it live. Yeah, I mean, it was, we played it live. We played it live on the... We played it live on the... Um, on the... What was the, 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 the... It was part of the set on um, that 2018 tour. And, of course, it was in the, the, the Vigil Velchmert set, you know, for the tour that never was. But, um, but I've got... I'm trying to get something sorted out on this. I do have one hour and 33 minutes that Steve Vances has been polishing up and tweaking and do bits. One hour and 33 minutes of the Aberdeen Lemon Tree show. And I'm trying to find a way to use it properly. And I don't want to say too much about this because it's involved in a lot of kind of... It's a lot... Ah, shit, I left my beer through there. It involves a lot of... Um, Bits and pieces to deal with government and permissions and all sorts of stuff to do what we what I want to do. Uh, so there'll be more of it, but there is a set that's there. That's um, we've just got to find a way to deliver it to do what I want it to do, right? And it sounds really simple, but it's not, right? So, but I mean, um, the only thing state of mind's missing off it. There's only the end section, but it was a brilliant version of State of Mind. It was a great version of State of Mind at Lemon Tree. Ian Simpson, please release that Nottingham show from Radio 1. I can't. The BBC own the rights to that. Um, it's one of them strange things. You know, as I said, we're, we're vigil. I'm, we're still. It's still in negotiation. It's, it's not really in negotiation. I think everybody's agreed what's got to happen, we just, it's not been signed off on yet. And, um, it's, uh, as far as I'm aware, this is, there's nothing holding it back, but I've, I don't have it signed off. And I'm, I'm long enough in the tooth to know that you don't start getting involved with projects unless you've got green lights for everything, because things can go ugly very quickly. And they can go really fucking ugly, right? So I thought, we'll leave that. You want to hear the Colin Grant, you agree, hear the live version? Yeah, the live version. The young version is the best ever. Uh, uh, Bob Hoff, also evidence of no stealing. David Tarras, you want the live version? Okay, you want the live version? I'll play the live version. Right. Um, I'll play the one of Parley, because it's quite emotive. I think, uh, because where we were where we were when we recorded it, it was um, recorded at Islington. Aha! You go, oh, wow! 
That's weird. It's the same film that's coming up on the TV that I was playing it earlier on. They want to hear the live version as well, darling. This is a wee thing I got off a, a friend in, in Denmark years ago. Very nice little painting. And there's that one I was telling you about. It's the Mark Wilkinson Van Gogh kind of copy thing. This is my Heed CD player. Everything set up. That's my Parasound amplifier, which is stunning. That's the thing that rocks out the kefs. And that is my Torrens TD166 Mark II turntable for the end song of the night, which I think you might find appropriate. Fuck, was it remote? What is it with remotes? Ah, there it is. <sighs> Gotta find it. Hang on, bear with me. No. I can hear you all laughing. Old man checks his rearview mirror. Wispy hair, familiar eyes. Journeys alone in the shore of the exit. What has happened? to respond to the control. What's going on? This is weird. I'm going to send this back to the bloody manufacturer. I don't mean Caesar with a CD. Bollocks. It's absolutely cursed. Anyway, find with the stick. <laughs>
This is <laughs> this CD player won't respond to the controls. I'm gonna to have to switch it off and reset the damn thing. <laughs> the guys in supply that are probably going, ah, oh, bollocks. So anyway, that wasn't State of Mind Live. That was Man with a Stick. But um, I try and get it fixed, but it's gonna to take too long. But I might. I could maybe. What time is it now? If I let the CD run, then eventually it might get round in time, but maybe not. <laughs> it's not the batteries. It's not the batteries. Honestly, it's, it's not the batteries in the remote. The actual player won't won't talk to me. It just won't talk. It's gone away again. Bollocks. Where's the one that gives up? There's the one that gives up. It's going up again. Hello. I'm at the proper height. <laughs> One song extra, great, brilliant, yeah. Man with a bag of CD player remote. I don't know, honestly, God, it's, it's me and tech. It's just things go wrong. That's why I never really like... When we, when we go out in the road and it's like, well, we're going to do this, and it's like, blah, 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 and I go, is the tech involved? Because it's like, it's going to go down. If I'm, in, if I'm anywhere near it, it goes down, you know? Remember with Chris Kimsey when we worked on the <coughs> when we worked on the album here, it was um it was uh, I don't know if I've told you the story, but was that when we were through working on the album or working on the album here, we had this little machine and Chris was going nuts and he was going he he, he got a little bit precious one a couple of times and he got a little bit, you know, and it's like give me a break, mate. Because the studio was all built internally, so it was the very first album we recorded here. So it was all kind of getting put in place and wired up. And we were guinea-pigging it all at the time. I mean, the, like I said, the area that I'm sitting in here is at the back of the studio and used to be a, a, a packing room. It was part of the office for through there. I mean, um, where that painting is, there was a door, right? And then it was like this was where my mum used to work back in the days of the company. And when she used to write you all those little letters for the company, this is where she used to write them from. It's a little room. And, um, but what we discovered was when we set up the big lens speakers at the front, right, the big ones at the front, they were too close to the wall. And there was a, there was a bass reverb coming off the wall and we had to build these big um, bass soakers, basically trying to soak the bass up. And the, the problem was that if you were sitting at the front of the room, you got too much bass, so you were turning the bass down, and every time you went to mix the damn thing, all the, there was no bass there. So that's why we, over the, the period, 
not during the album, but the as the years went on, we we got this room and knocked it through, and we created a great big bass soaker at the back here, and it helped, but it just meant it was really difficult getting all the acoustics right. But um, but yeah, but when Chris Kimsey was here, we was all the machines were all getting plugged in for the first time. They're getting taken out of boxes and plugged in. It was crazy, and um. We had all the microphones, all the bits, and the big DDA desk and stuff. But I remember coming through there one day, and Chris was 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 going mental. He's like, "This place, this is amateur. I can't, I can't work here. I can't do this. I can't be expected to deal with these kind of circumstances. I'm a professional musician." Blah blah blah. Uh-huh. And he was, he, and he said, the, the, "It was the small. It was was a half inch machine, a quarter inch machine, right? And um, it was a wee studio thing." Right? And he was trying to make it work, and he's going, it's not bloody working, right? And um, he was going nuts, and he, started, he was going to walk off the project, right? And I went through, and I looked to the studio, and I was like, press stop, press play, or what? Perfect, rewind, da, da, da. And it was strange, there was some weird stuff happened that was just kind of on and off stuff, right? And um, it was... Um, Just listen to what tracks on through there. Oh yeah. What song is that? <laughs> oh, Waverly Steps. And uh so anyway, so Chris was like, you know, moaning about this stuff, right? And and Thomas used to get really freaked out because he would never go through it. And this ties in with a question that asked. It came from Karen Clark says, Fish, have you ever seen a ghost in your home? Right? Well, in the studio, right? Thomas wouldn't go through there at night. And even Elliot Ness hated going through basically that door that I, where I walked, where, where the fire is. That was the main floor. There was no windows there. It was, it was just basically a big box for recording. Great for playing Skeletric in and stuff. And great for, you know, parties. And of course, writing and recording. But it was, um, but it was a box, you know, and all the lights were set up through there so you could put mood lighting in. But the guys, nobody liked going through there at night being the last one out, right? Which reminded me of Dick Brothers Garage when I used to work for my dad at the garage. And, you know, I had to lock up the garage at night and the bit where you had to go back to, through to the way back to the, the, to the back of the old, really old garage where all the, the, the panel beaten things and where the, the, the holes were in the ground for the um, for the pits, examination pits. And when you had to switch the lights off and leave the garage and put the lights out, it was, it was kind of really creepy, right? And so was this place. And Thomas was like kind of, um, Thomas was really nervous about it. And he was convinced it was ghosts here, right? And, of course, it was all this equipment stuff. Anyway, in the middle of internal exile, Thomas went off to Italy. And um, he went away for, like, a, a week and a half holiday with his girlfriend. And, um, and he came back and he told us that he'd seen a medium, right? And um, he'd seen a medium. And the medium had said to him, what you need to do is go around the studio and waft the entire area with the smoke from a smouldering sage plant of this Italian sage plant. 
And when you do, and he said specifically, this Italian sage plant. And Thomas came back with all this stuff. And before we went in, he went round the studio, the whole control room wafted the smoke about and wafted it around. And it changed. And it's really weird. Like we didn't have any technical issues, those intermittent technical issues, none of it. The whole place just changed. And this is where you'll stand up in the back of your head, you'll stand up the back of your head. Because what happened was that this room here, this old room, where we did all the writing and recording and stuff, right? This room used to be where they kept Italian prisoners of war and they worked the fields back in the day. So during the Second World War, there was a bunch of Italians that slept in here and stayed here and basically dealt, after, dealt with the fields while the, the, the Scottish guys were all away. And I did actually find, when I, when I planted up the orchard, I actually found, and I've still got it somewhere. Numbers about him drawing inconsequentially. I still might have found it. It's kicking around. I found a button from a military uniform from the Italian Carabinieri and I found it down in the down in the, the orchard and it must have belonged to one of the soldiers and but it must and when, when I talked to somebody here they said that when we built the studio there was basically there was a kind of a, a spirit vibe going on and when we broke the ground and changed this entire block into the studio, we'd upset a lot of the spirits. And and they, but doing this Italian sage stuff, that's what they reckon would calm it down. Some of you might be thinking that's all bollocks, right? But it worked at the time and it was a great story. And Thomas, it kept Thomas sane. God bless him. Yeah, but yeah, that was a good story. And it had... I've never had any problems in here, but I know people that have. Like I said, Elliot Ness used to absolutely shit himself when he was, you know, and he'd leave all the lights on in the studio, all these big halogen lights. Going, what are you doing? Turn the fucking lights off. No good in there, man. No good in there. Right. But I did have another couple. There was one person stayed here, but he was a bit of a bullshit, right? And he said that he woke up in the middle of the night Right? And there was a shepherd. This was in one of the, this is in the room in the, the the main house, right at the back, right, which is the room that actually looks onto the studio. And he woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a, an apparition of a shepherd standing in, in the, the basically in the bottom of in the bottom of the bed, and he tapped his head with a crook and woke him up. But he was a bit of a bullshitter, so I don't know. But James Cassidy. James Cassidy swears, right? And you know he's a he's a fellow Celt. He's a he's an Northern Irish boy, right? And um, he was across in the other part of the um, in the residential block one night, and um, he was convinced that he saw um, um, a woman um, across there, and he he saw a, um, an apparition of a woman crossing the, the, the residential block and it absolutely freaked him out. And there was another sighting of a, a woman in the wardrobe in the same room where the shepherd was. And the thing was, it's spittle rig, right, which is what this area is, right? It can be, it's the hospital in the hill. And my old house, the house that we stayed in next door, um, 
what they reckon it was a TB hospital because of the Lammermuirs have got all the various agricultural workers, especially shepherds up there, and shepherds would often contract TB and have all sorts of kind of, um, you know, problems with chests and things, you know. And um, and I was always amazed with the house because all the windows, there was so many windows and doors in it. And it's been put, it was put forward that the reason it was built like that was because they stayed in there. It was like, like the hospital in the hill, Spittle Rig, allegedly. And the whole idea was that the, when they, they stayed in there, they opened all the windows and the doors up to let the air come through so they could actually breathe. And in the days of coronavirus and COVID, it's like, it's, like I said, this is this is one of these fishing Fridays that goes spinning and turning and, you know, taking in all sorts of things from different angles. So, so I had one. And when I first moved into the house, I did have, I did wake up with a freeze one night where I was convinced there was something, there was a huge, dense black thing coming into the, the room and I couldn't move and I ended up, lying there, I couldn't move and just shouting and then it just went away and cleared. But I, I believe in it, you know, I believe in, um, I believe in spirits, I believe in, in, you know, those kind of energies and things. And, you know, but I, th I think it depends on the person you are as well. But it was always, in some of the cases, it was always, it was the people that have had bad experiences here with vibes and things, there tend to be people that, how can I just do this to paraphrase it? Were against us, you know, and that's, I don't mean James Cassidy by any stretch of imagination, but it was like people that were kind of not healthy for me or my family, right? They tended to be hit as if we've got we have got kind of guardians about. But I often wonder. It's like you know, it's like <laughs> what just happened to the CD player? Is that? Like, Get the hotel, you'd say, Jerry, honey, we're going to have a bit of a smoking tonight. <laughs> But it is weird, right? Electrics in this house. Right. Callum McConnell, really? Nuclear site from our orbit is the only way to be sure. Female, lovely, lovely box. <laughs> it's not. Oh. Oh. Piero Kokeba, fish the carabinieri are everywhere. <laughs> They're in the bloody orchard, underneath the cherry tree. But I mean, yeah, but that was weird. weird. I mean, it was Italian troops over here, right? And we put the Italian sage in the whole vibe, and it's, it's this this place has got an incredible vibe. Simone and I are like this is the best place we have ever lived. I never want to move from this. I mean, I've never been, I've never been the type of person that buys a house to kind of do it up and then sell it. You know, I've I've always been a home person. You know, every place I've ever bought has been for a long term period. You know, it's like when I bought. Albert Street in Aylesbury. I, you know, it was like, I, I always thought I was going to be staying there for years and years and years and years. Huh? Chrissy Pye, wartime spirits lover acknowledgement. Uh, Lee Cookson. <laughs> Richard Hall, certainly isn't bollocks, something's... Oh, Elliot Ness! Is it the character of the attorney? Yeah, Elliot Ness. Elliot Ness is Elliot Singerman. That's his real name, but he, be he became Elliot Ness. And he now lives across in, in he lives back in Israel. And he's, he's, quite a, he's a very, very well-known engineer across in Israel. Lovely little broke. He's my, he's my little boy, he's Elliot. Miss him. <laughs> uh, 
Carol Lawrence always was it Halloween last week? I know it was Halloween last week, but somebody asked the question, right? Okay. Right, it's twenty to eight. Gotta watch it. <sighs> so the mirrors tour in Portsmouth, but why was your arm in a sling? Because I was an arse. We had a day off in the Holiday Inn in Portsmouth, right? It's a true story, right? We had a day off in the Holiday Inn in Portsmouth, and um, my then wife and I were still trying to get over a major issue. And I was away in tour, and she was here, and things weren't going well at all. And without going into a lot of detail, I phoned up and there was nobody here and I got a bit angry. And the thing was, I, I was downstairs, down in the holiday, the holiday in Portsmouth was like, it's built like, it's a rectangular block. Then it had this big kind of slopey kind of roof came off it from like, I think it was the top of the first floor, came down. At the far end was the pool and the spa area. Then there was the bar. Then there was a restaurant with a glass wall that went all the way down that kind of hid the restaurant from the corridor and the small reception area. And I was in the bar with the boys and I was getting drunk and I was going up and I was phoning home and there was no answer and I was getting more and more uptight. And there was some guys that were winding us up and they were spoiling for it, right? And it was all, let's just ignore them later. I'm getting more and more irate, right? And I went upstairs and I tried a phone call and I ended up smashing the phone, inadvertently breaking the bed. I think I fell on it or something, but I was very, very drunk. And I came downstairs and I wanted a battle. I'll be quite honest about it. I just, I was so angry about everything that was going on and, and stuff. And it was just, oh, it was just, I was just a mess on a day off in tour. And, uh, you know, and uh, so I went downstairs and I was spoiling for a fight. And I went down and there was nobody there. The bar was shut. <laughs> I'd, been up, I'd been upstairs, like, you know, going nuts, like smashing it. Well, then smashed the room up, right? I never smashed hotel rooms up. It was like, it's like you smash other people's hotel rooms up. You never smash your own up, right? Because you got paid for it, right? So, it's you know, the idea of throwing TVs at windows. Nay, you throw TVs at other people's windows. But that's another story I could tell you from Kosovo sometime. But it's um, but yeah. So I was in Portsmouth and the Holiday Inn, and I'm pissed, and I'm really, I'm I'm pissed American still, like like really really angry and um and i just, i wanted to to punch something and um i came back down the corridor by the restaurant and i turned around and there was a great big glass panel there and i thought i'll punch that <laughs> fucking idiot right so i punched this panel like that like i can cry punch right i punched it like that and then dropped and did the underhand punch and dropped to my knees to punch the bottom of it, right? Why? I don't know, right? But what I didn't realise that what I was punching was quarter-inch plate glass, right? And I hit the top end, right? And the glass broke. And when I went down to do the bottom bit, the top glass was falling down. And it all kind of came pummeling down, this entire wall of glass came pummeling down. And it caught my wrist. And you can maybe just see that, I don't know. But it's the stupidest fucking scar. That, the scar runs there, all the way down there. 
It went, it ran all the way up my hand, I cut all my, all that. But it cut that, and my, I was open, my arm was open. I'm sorry if you're eating. But all the cables were there, if you know what I mean. You could see, it, it just opened up, and you could see all the cables. I don't know to this day how the fuck I didn't slash something really terminal, right? It was just stupid, right? But, you know, and my common sense went in, my adrenaline just, you know, kicked in straight away. And when I did it, I went bam, bam, and I was like, Poof, what? and I just went, oh, oh, this is a problem, you're bleeding heavily. And I just remember sitting down on the floor and just putting a pressure point on, putting my arm in the, the air and waiting on somebody to come. And boy, did they come. Because when I hit that glass, it did make rather a noise in this huge, expansive open space with the pool and the spa and the restaurant and shit. And the next thing, oh, the band were, the band is like, oh, dear fish, oh, steaming to a man, right? So an ambulance is called, right? And then, so I'm, I'm, I'm the paramedics see me, so you got to go in the hospital, get this looked at, right? Because so, they didn't know whether there was glass in it and stuff like that, so. And, um, and I got to the back, back of the ambulance, and there's like, you know, next thing is about this, this, the crew and everybody, is about six of us in the back of this ambulance heading up to the, the was it the, the Queen Elizabeth? Anyway, in Portsmouth, big big hospital, and they were great and stuff. And I remember walking in, and there was like Mark Brzezinski's drum roadie. What's his name? Come to me, no one. And uh, he walks in. He says, he says, he's what? Well, he says, he says, uh, uh, we, we seem to have an emergency. <laughs> I just go yes. He says, and he went, we've run out of coffee. <laughs> So mayhem. Two, and this is like the vigil tour. Everyone in it, man. Manager John Cavan is going like, oh, for God's sake. Andy Field's going, you are so. And I'm going like, nah. But everybody knew it was, it might come across as being very flippant, but there were actually like a lot of deep, kind of, there's a lot of deep shit going on underneath it all, right? And, um, and I was, and I came out of the hospital and it was like, you know, oh dear. But my arm was all right. And obviously, if it'd been if it'd been Mark Brzezinski or Robin Bolt or Frank Usher or Ricky Simmons, then we would have had a major problem. But voice was okay, right? <laughs> so I had my hand strapped up, and uh, and it, you know we weren't going to lose any gigs, you know. So it was, and I went up, and then of course inside the hospital, and well inside the, the Holiday Inn, seemingly there was a stringer from the Sun, or it was at the hospital, was a stringer from the Sun, and they reported it. And the tabloids were all over me, and it was like kind of I spent. And Brian Munns, who was my press officer, God bless Brian. Brian sadly passed away a long time ago. He was a brilliant guy and saved my ass so many times from shit that I got myself into. And he managed to kind of deflect it and did it. And it went up, and it was it blew over in two days, like you know all press stories do, you know. But that was it. So that was the reason why I went on, on, on stage. And I've still got this shitty scar all down there. Yeah, it's a hard one. And it's, um, I think, I'm trying to think how many stitches it was. Um, I think it was about 13 stitches in that area. But they said at the time, they said, you were lucky. And that was swam. And, um, but it was, uh, but yeah, that's what it was. It was a really stupid thing. It's, it was, you know, one of them apocalypse now moments, you know, smash, smash the mirror. You know. um, when was the lawsuit with Marillion finally settled, Raymond Van Jick? It was settled in 1991. It took ages. and um, It took absolutely ages. And um, 
but yeah, it was when I, it was it was kind of around about the same time as as, as when I signed to Polydor. It was all kind of done and dusted. But I mean, it was stupid. It was like you know, at the end of the day, there was a bunch of lawyers made a shitload of money, right? And actually, at the time, I met I, I met with Dave Gilmore, and we we were. We were working on this charity single together, and we we ended up playing pool in some pub in Labrup Grove, and uh, and we were talking about it. And he said, "Look, he said, you know, you got to talk. He said, you know, you have to talk with the guys." And um, he said, "You know, it's crazy." He said, "Like it's just, you know, once the lawyers are unleashed for the chains." And of course, he was talking about, you know, his obvious thing where Roger was, and he was, and he was just. God, it's ridiculous. And then that's what it became. It became absolutely stupid. And the lawyers made a lot of money. In the same way, it's just to turn the whole thing around. It's like, you know, you're looking at all these legal challenges that Donald Trump's going to be making, you know, on, you know, in Pennsylvania and then the Republican-controlled Georgian state, right? And you just, you know, it's lawyers. Man, oh, man, oh, man. You know? It's like, if you're, a, if you're looking for a career, become a lawyer or a vet, but become a, litigi- a litigious lawyer. Because it was, it was horrendous. I mean, it was like both for Marillion and myself, it was horrendous. And at the end of the day, the Marillion litigation, it was discovered that our entire financial setup was a complete and utter fucking mess. And there was a partnership involved and there was shitloads of tax to be paid, which all came in at the same time as I was building this studio and all the rest of it. It's all round about the same time. So, And it was, it was weird. And it was funny because... Steve Rothery, right? Is um, Steve's been doing brilliant, right? I think he's 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 done about twenty. He's lost about twenty pounds. He was he was talking about it at the beginning of the year that I think with COVID coming in, like all of us of our age, you know, you become aware aware that you know you're carrying a lot of weight. You know, you've got all these underlying health issues, blah blah blah. And Steve decided to take it in his hands, and he he addressed it, and he's done absolutely brilliant. And uh, I've not seen them since, obviously, you know, and they're back locked that everybody f- further down south is back in there again. But Steve lost shitloads of weight. And I remember, actually, the first time I saw Steve was in, uh, it was in a lawyer's office. And it must have been, let me think, 89, end 89 probably. And... Steve had, had gone on a, a, a serious kind of weight loss thing. And I remember walking into this room and I didn't recognise him. Right? He'd lost so much weight. I actually didn't recognise Steve, which was really weird. And um, and it was... Uh, it really threw me because I hadn't seen the guys, you know. Because when I left the band, it was like, you know, everything just went, you know, war footing. Lawyers of Chains. A lot of shit happened at that point, which was absolutely stupid. And it could have been discussed, but I know why it wasn't. And I'm not going to see why. Right? So, some other parties had some interest, not the band, but so, in having it the way it went. And it's, uh, it leads on to a couple of questions, because there's, um, do you ever get royalties? Will you ever get royalties for Kaylee or will EMI not cooperate? I've been paid for all my stuff. EMI didn't stop my royalties. That I got paid. And the thing was, I left EMI and then went to Polydor, right? 
and Marillion was still signed to EMI, right? So what happened was when I left after Clutch at Straws, the royalties came through and my debt stopped when I left the band. So anything that the boys spent went onto their account and the account split. So I was actually getting money after about three years, four years. I had record royalties coming through because my account was cleared, my, my, my share of it, which was one-fifth share. And it's one of the things that, you know, I've, I've said before, it's like one of the, the, the urban myths and the lies that went about was I was wanting, you know, 50% of everything to do with Marillion. That was absolute bollocks. I wanted 50% of the publishing, which I got because I was a lyricist that had a normal standard procedure. And that's why I get paid for Kaylee. And even nowadays, Kaylee is a, a, it's a big part you know, what we get in here, you know, well, that's a big part, it's a part, it's, um, that is my, Kaylee is, is my pension, which is kind of a really strange thing, you know, for as long as it plays on, you know, golden radio. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you might didn't stop my rollies, and like, you know, even Vigil, I still get paid for, I mean, I still get paid the digital rollies, I mean, you know, EMI will be, they, they hold the digital rights you know, forever, you know, we'll never get them back. Like I said, I would have liked to have bought that copyright back, but I can't, and that's fair enough, that's the way it works. And it's, um, and it's like, how was the relationship with your mates? It's fine, you know, I mean, all the people that I knew back then have all gone. The record industry's really changed. I remember going into EMI when they were down, uh, down Hammersmith Way, right? And I had been in there for years, and they'd moved. Because Manchester Square, I loved. I mean, that was such an iconic building. And I've got so many fantastic memories of EMI Manchester Square. And so have a lot of other musicians I'm, I, I know, right? But then they moved, and they, they moved down towards Hammersmith. And I hadn't been in there for a long, long time. And I, I went in, and it was it felt like an insurance building. There was no music. You could, you didn't walk in. You had all the, the pictures in the wall of Kate Bush and, you know, Duran Duran and Pink Floyd and blah, blah, blah. You know, the same as was in Manchester Square with all the new faces, you know, Robbie and, and all the rest of it, right? But there was you didn't hear any music and it was all open plan offices. When it was in Manchester Square, it was all little offices where you could go and poke in and do bits and, you know, blah, blah, blah. everybody had a bar. Everybody had, every had promo albums. Crap. But um, but yeah, and and when I went down there, it, it just changed. And a lot of the people, I don't think any of the people that were there, you know, when I was there, you know, are, are even a lot of them aren't even in the business now, or they've gone up levels. Um, I still keep in touch. I mean, thanks to Facebook and things, you know, I'm actually, you know, still in touch with some people. John Cavanagh and I are, are, are still in touch. You know, he was my manager until you know 1993. But, um, but, you know, I didn't have any hassle. You know, it was kind of, you know, nowadays, it was sad what happened, you know, as I said last week. It was sad what happened. But if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here in this control room. This, this studio was built to safeguard my creativity, my artistry. That was, this is my bottle. So nobody could stop me writing and nobody could stop me recording that. It's why this studio was built, and I'm really glad I did it. Horrendous at the time, but... Right, we're moving up to 5-2, so it's like moving out time. Do you still talk to your ex-Marillion lads from Jim Hedra? Yes, I do, right? 
Mark Kelly was in contact with me a couple of weeks back. I got a text going, he's standing for PRS. I find it amazing that Mark's got really into the business and into the musicians kind of kind of side of the music business. And he's um, on the, the PRS board. And so I always hear him for at least once a year when he goes, like, can you put a vote in for, for the PRS board, please? Yeah. And of course, he's got a new album out that I've not heard yet. But it's... Uh... But E. Mosley and I... Every time one of us has kind of got a medical problem, we're, we're you all right, mate? You're all right. New Year, we're always in touch. You know, they live down south. You know, I mean, they live hundreds of miles away from me. I mean, you know, I mean, Steve Vances. I mean, I've, this is the longest time I've never seen Steve for, for years and years and years and years. And um, with Marillion, it's the same. I mean, you know, even, I think I mentioned before that, you know, I'd be talking with Mark Kelly when I'd, I'd stayed with him the night before the 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 the, the, the Aylesbury gig, and I said, "Like we should go down and see them. Like, we should get together and go." For, I said, "I never see them. He never sees them outside the studio." And uh, but that's what they do. That's kind of where their relationship is. And you know, but uh, you know, and I'm a bit different. And um, you know, we still got on fine. You know, you know, when we talk, it's all pleasant. I mean, you know. We, it took us a fair number of years to get through it all. And, you know, and so on some areas, there's still some animosity that's held towards me for certain things, which don't care. It's like, you know, it was something that was settled in the, in, in the suit and, um, or in the litigation we had. And it's... Um, it happened a long time ago, and we just don't talk about it. When we meet up, we just don't talk about it. And, you know, as Ian said in, in his article, which was ironic, it was the same the same prog magazine that I had the front cover on. And it was interesting, you know, obviously reading stuff. And I've read his book. His book's brilliant. He's, he's, uh, he's wee autobiography. It's, uh, it's really cool. But... Um, you know, as Ian said, you're an article. He just wants to remember the best, but he, doesn't, he wants to remember the good bits. Doesn't remember the bad bits. So, but it's um, it's all cool, right? Lawyer or veterinary surgeon, death. Sue Williamson. Yeah, my daughter just paid an eighty quid vet bill the other day. Give me a break. Uh, Chrissy Pie. I love Rothery. He will look amazing again soon. He's always looked amazing. Uh, J-Roll, Stephen Rother looks amazing. Oh, if, if Steve's watching, they all think you're beautiful, mate. That's what they do. But yeah, but with Steve doing it, it's, just, it's like, reminded me, it's like, you know, I've got to watch how this is going on. Right. Met Dave Gilmore once, we had a mutual friend, Douglas Adams, a hitchhiker's guide, Mark Townsend, yeah. Chrissy Pyle, sad you split. Listen, what happened, happened. I don't, it happened. Get over it, you know. No. Ken Bruce played Kingley the other day. Brilliant. Callum McConnell. Yeah. If he'd only played Gardner Remembrance or something or, or Parties Over, that'd be stunning. Right? Well. Uh, man, within the, all your music on Tidal, do you get royalties from the scripture? Yeah, we get. <laughs> we do receive our, our, our annual pittance from the streaming sites. It's rather nice. It's very appreciated, the streaming sites. Like I said last week, you know, 480,000 album streams on Spotify, right? And, you know, we're doing okay. You know, we, we, we only sold, like, about 15,000 albums. It's like, you know, 
But it's huge on Spotify. Yeah. Lindsay Little, Kelly played, yeah, 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 yeah. Brent Hartman, one day I'd love to see you in South Australia. Great wines here. I'd love to be in and come to Australia. I'd love to come down to Australia New Zealand. Never been there. Never gigged there. But uh, Anyway. We're moving up to three minutes too, and I need to go through. I've got to leave this because I've got to go through and I haven't got to switch the thing through. I'm going to play the vinyl rather than go for the CD player. Well... Going to move through, take a walk through. Show you some other shit on the way through. If Pilgrim's Address is put up for nomination, you can tell me and I'll tell you the stories about that next week. There's my there's my sign thing from the middle, it's the best of both worlds, right? Uh, Steve said, it wasn't me, honest, looking forward to sunsets. That's how long ago that was. And that, I got the signature. That's one of the very few autographs that I've got. And that's Alex Harvey's autograph that was given by um, uh, a guy called Patchouli, who was a Belgian DJ who died of cancer about nine months ago. It's Alex Harvey's drunken autograph from Zeebrugge or something. We're coming through, darling. Hello. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> what are you doing, darling? Waiting. What's happening? I'm waiting for the news to continue and I'm waiting for the curry I've ordered. Oh, you've ordered? <laughs> yeah, um, I've ordered. Because tonight we're having a takeaway. Yeah. What, we have, what did you get for me? I don't, I don't know. It's weird names. I don't know what I've ordered, to be honest. It was an hour ago and I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I thought this one would be a good one to end on. Right? I know some of you don't like me watching CNN, but we do, because it makes me feel a little bit better that it's other... I can't explain. It's just. I understand. Yeah. There is the remote. So we're going to end tonight with this. I figured it was appropriate in a minor way.
That's it for tonight. Five minutes late, running a little bit over. But then again, it's not taking as long as the Georgia and the <coughs> Pennsylvanian running boots counts. Me and Miss, it's a takeaway curry tonight. Glass of wine. Oh. What's better, the American election? <coughs> I know you're all going to sit in there well, if you're down south. You know, it's, uh, sorry it's all going, you know, back there again, but we're still here. And I'll be back again next Friday. It's, um, so you've got another four weeks of a captured audience. Um, and waiting to be captured myself. So take care of yourselves. Stay sane, you know. Uh, and I'll try and get something sorted out. Yes? What? What? About what? About what? Sounds <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll deal with it all. Okay. It's, um, for everybody else, just remember kind of where it's all at. It's uh, masks and social distance and just watching after yourself and common fucking sense, right? It's like no matter what rules you get told, if you just apply common sense, it just all falls into being. Um, and so, until next week, from my beautiful darling wife until, and I. Right. Until next week. Until next week. Okay. Take care, stay alive. <laughs> Slash the bar. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.